And welcome to Small Biz Matters, the half-hour program where you work on your business rather than in it. Why is that going in there? Oh, I'm experiencing technical difficulties. <laughs> Good job. I've got an expert with me today all about uh, cyberness and cybersecurity. That's right. We've got Gunnar Habits coming back to us uh, as one of our regular guests. It's always wonderful to have you back on the show, Gunnar. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be back, Alex. Now, we had an awesome show last time. We were talking uh, quite a lot about the intricacies of the cloud and helping our small business listeners to understand why it's an important factor of your business. In fact, I would say one of the cornerstones, really, that you've really got got to get your head around. I mean, there's data flying around. We are relying so heavily on the Google Drives and the OneBoxes and the OneDrives of this world to make sure that they're holding what is essentially entirety of our business, all of the data, all of the documents, all of the spreadsheets, we are really entrusting um, these companies, these third parties, uh, with with the cornerstone of our business. And sometimes you have to stop and think to realise that that can be a little bit scary if you, you're not controlling it. And I think that what's, what today is going to be about is, is helping people to understand um, what that beast is and how to control it and really um, to make sure that you're as knowledgeable as you need to be with your business data to protect it, to control it and uh, to understand where it lives in a way. So welcome back to the program again. Um, we're going to talk firstly a little bit about uh, just a refresh on what we talked about before, which was essentially... In, it's like it's like one of those essay questions. In a paragraph, could you describe to me what the cloud is and why, why is it so important that small businesses have to get their head around it and understand it? Yeah, uh, happy to do. Good to be back, uh, Alexi. Thanks for the, for the second invitation for this. So then, of course, we all in small business, we need to have cloud services. And cloud is not just a space somewhere where we can control where it is. The cloud is actually a set of data that we can put there, but also services around that, mm. that we really have the chance to to work this out, not only to, to store the data, but that it does something for us. And we are so much used to use little kind of apps, like maybe a Calendly, only to have the possibilities for our clients to book meetings with us, that's synchronizing with all of our other items like uh, Outlook Calendar, Google Calendar, whatever. And we need to trust there's everything that's in the cloud, wherever that is, mm. most cases we don't even know where, mm. that this is up and running, that it's there when we need it, and also that we are, have the capability to get it out of the cloud again. So then some people say, oh, it's in the cloud, it's safe. Well, the cloud providers, they do everything that their service is up and running. And it's rather rarely that there are big outages happen on the on the big providers. And, mm. and when it happens, then really a company like Amazon had it last year in March, a, a bigger outage on the S3. So then they're really doing everything that they can do in order to streamline their processes, find out what was the root cause, change everything so that customers gain back trust. Yeah. But what's I always say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's <laughs> no. But what is in the cloud doesn't necessarily stay in the cloud. Logically, what we post somewhere, let's say even on Facebook or LinkedIn, might stay there even if you don't want it, if That's you've right. done something wrong, so therefore you need to pay attention what you do. But the biggest thing is how can you get something out of the cloud? If you store your data, if you synchronize Google Drive, OneDrive, Dropbox, Box, all of them are synchronization services. So you have your data there. You maybe delete one file on your notebook and it's synchronized everywhere that it's gone. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have like on Dropbox, uh, business, the extended version history, 
then you might even lose the data, although it was in the cloud. Yeah, that's right, because what we forget to to um, to factor in is that when you're deleting files, you are deleting them from across all of your devices. So anybody who uses Dropbox will be familiar with that, that there's a synchronicity between all of the different data storage units that you have, um, and sometimes it's hard to get that back. And I know in our last program we touched on the fact that just because something is a data storage facility doesn't mean it's a data backup facility. And I think a lot of people make that mistake um, and we don't recognise that. We just trust, we just assume that this very, very, very important file, which is fundamental to our business, is always going to be available to us. So um, I remember last time just as a, as a way of protecting, making sure that your data is always available to you, you mentioned a concept which is called 321. Could you take us through that again? Yeah, yeah indeed. So one of our, the backup providers that we are working with from a software point of view, Veeam Software, therefore with 321, that means that you need to have three versions or three copies of your data. Mm-hmm in two different kinds of media and one location should be off-site. Right, let's, let's just do, do that from a practical point of view. I'm a small business owner. I've got some of my stuff in Google Drive. I've got some in Dropbox. There's some idiot client who's communicating with me through another facility and it's all over the place. So uh, when you say three different devices, are you suggesting that one can be in the cloud as a backup? Yeah, yeah, three different locations. That means I might have something locally on my machine when I'm somewhere with a client off-site that I have my relevant files with me. Right. I have some at a location, maybe inside my offices around or even in my cloud. You're talking about like a terabyte drive that you buy from For example, a, a retailer? Yep. Yeah, yeah, or a NAS drive, something like this. Mm-hmm. And one should be the backup that is residing in the cloud. So when something happens to your on-premise environment, mm. a fire, a theft, simply not working anymore, mm-hmm. that can happen, that at least you have another version of it. So then three times the same file. And I also think... When you're creating something, when you're creating a business plan for your business uh, on, on a regular basis, and especially now with a new financial year coming, why not having saving it in a different version number so that then mm. you don't risk an overwriting? So better have a bit of more number of files, but ensure that you can go back locally easily wherever you are using your smartphones, your tablet, whatever. And um, that is the three, three versions of the file. Two different kind of media in that sense means uh, it can be on disk, it can be on cloud. Mm-hmm. Tape would be another one, but mm-hmm. let's not go back into our <laughs> grandfather's way of doing business. <laughs> and one should be off-site, so yeah. that's, that's quite logical when one one building goes down, especially when you have uh, maybe one or two locations that you're operating from. One can be your home office, one can be what kind of a... Uh, office location you have, mm-hmm. then it would be good to have it on both even sides. Even a family member's home, even somebody yeah. else that you know yeah. very well that you can just say. Now, how often, from a small business perspective, how often would you say it's important to do that that um, that exercise of backing up? I suppose it depends how quickly and how frequently you, you go through files. Let's take it the other way around. The purpose of the small business usually is not taking care of the backup, but rather letting the business operating and running. Yeah. So then why should you even care actively doing it yourself? Mm-hmm. So there are two, and um, that is the three three version of the file, two different kind of media. In that sense, means uh, it can be on disk, it can be on cloud. Mm-hmm. Tape would be another one, but mm-hmm. let's not go back into our grandfather's way of doing business. <laughs> and one should be offsite, so yeah. that's that's quite logical when one one building goes down, especially when you have. Uh, maybe one or two locations that you're operating from, one can be your home office, one can be what kind of a, uh, office location you have, mm-hmm. then it would be good to have it on both even sides. Even a family member's home, even somebody yeah. else that you know yeah. very well that you can just say. Now, how often, from a small business perspective, how often would you say it's important to do that that um, that exercise of backing up? 
I suppose it depends how quickly and how frequently you, you go through files. Let's take it the other way around. The purpose of the small business usually is not taking care of the backup, but rather letting the business operating and running. Yeah. So then why should you even care actively doing it yourself? Mm-hmm. So the typical SME way of having an external hard disk, putting it on, pressing on a button, do something, take this with yourself, put it in your car, Mm, that is creating sometimes more risk, security risk uh, than it's really doing. So then a more automated solution that is doing the backup maybe once a day, the incremental versions only puts it into the cloud. Yes. Then you do not have to care as long you can also test to get something out. So that's the important thing there as well. So it's, it's almost as frequently as, as you can, but try and find a way that these can be automated, these systems, so that they're all happening in the background. Yes. But don't trust that piece of hardware that's in front of you which is you know you need to have those two places because the one that you've got in front of you that this little terabyte drive it might be broken and you might not even know it um quite often i've had clients who have uh, tried to extract files out of these devices that they've assumed has been working functionally for months i need to find that it is actually broken so they found out luckily not the hard way um, but everything else was backed up somewhere else internally on the computer. Um, also, want I just from a, uh, my perspective as well, I want to make everybody aware of the amount of data that is in your email. We've all been functioning with email for probably close to a decade now. Try and think all those emails that have come from your accountant or have come from um, even your doctor, just very important, highly sensitive information. At the very least, your tax returns will be in there. I I highly doubt they're not. Uh, And all of that is very sensitive. And if your email is not protected, either through a password protect on your laptop um, or uh, you might be using LastPass, which is is great. But also when you open your emails, if your uh, phone is not locked, for example, you leave it on a table somewhere and it's not locked. If you open up the email software, the app, do you have a double double, uh, entry point? So do you have to do a fingerprint to get into it? Ask yourself that. If you've got anything other than higher than an iPhone 5, you should be putting a fingerprint um, opening function on your emails. Because I, I, I say this to people all the time and I say, do you get emails from your accountant? Simple as that. Because unless you're talking to your accountant verbally all the time, there's going to be some highly sensitive data in there and um, highly likely for that to be stolen because it's very easy to get into your emails. And the other thing is as well, if you go to any program online and you say forgot password, what you're going to do is you're going to punch in your email address and you're going to say forgot password and that password reset is going to go to your email address, which is not protected on your phone, and then anybody can change your passwords to anything. And it's only a matter of going through your browser history to work out what sort of things you do log into. So think about that, everyone. If that's the one takeaway today, then then think about what is your backup and security functionality like for your programs that you use every day. Yes, Very and there, there's um, more and more applications who need to have multi-factor authentication so that uh, in order to look... Um, to go into some kind of application, I might to go back into my Google Authenticator and yes. put something out of this in it. Yes. And that is a, on one side looks like it is a hassle to do. On the other side, it's good to do mm-hmm. because it prevents others from getting into. Um, and it's also even even good to use various kind of email accounts, especially those different ones for all of the mailing, all of the advertising and so on, for downloading some stuff. So not that the same one, because when that gets hacked, as you mentioned, then you have in trouble. And anyway, on email, many people believe when you use email services, um, which are in the cloud, like an Office 365, uh, uh, Gmail and so on, 
that it's there, therefore it's sure, and when I need something, I get it. And that's a bit tricky anyway. So it's actually it's not. So I'm using uh, privately as well uh, Office 365 because I love the business flavor of it. Yes, and so the functionality. Large, but really the functionality and mm. security is a bit higher. But even if something would be, if I delete something and it's not there anymore and I realize there was an email, it was important. It's not in the junk. How to really get that out? So then Office 365 is not meant and designed for restoring the data that much. But there are tools behind that that can create this in a way that it's easy to retrieve. So if we're really in, in stuck in a situation, uh, is that an IT management consultant that we, we engage with to try and get some support yes. with? Yes, and, and here we come to an in interesting point. So in the past, let's say 20 years ago, when small business would buy infrastructure for, let's say, PC server, whatever, mm. an IT reseller would sell it to them because they have the close proximity and can guide, can advise. In the meantime, these IT resellers move from being a box-moving retailer or reseller over value-added reseller into managed service providers who really take care, especially of small businesses, because they need somebody to have the break-fix topics in the sense of, I have an issue now at 3.30, so I need somebody to fix it still today. So that is what MSPs are doing. Mm. But also somebody who can tell me and guide me as a business owner to say, that is the landscape that I have now, but what do I need in order to, to scope with IT to really be there to grow to grow mm, with it to mm. find out what kind of applications are there to, to always have these questions and somebody who is looking and puts a roadmap for me for my business to say that that's where the IT trends go to and that's how you can basically cope with that and uh, therefore the MSPs are very important because they're also quite good um advise us on that. Well, it's like anybody, you know, you're surrounding yourself with good people. What sort of questions do you ask uh, when you're looking for the right um, person? So as you mentioned, you need someone who's quite um, efficient with getting back to you. So their responsiveness is important, but also how well do they know your business or your type of business and the programs that you use and the way that you function? Because you don't want someone to come in and just completely overhaul all the systems and then you have to relearn everything. They really have to understand what your existing systems are and work with that, yeah. don't they? And, and and here it's easier than compared to a dentist. If you go to a new dentist, you move to a different town, he would say, change everything that the old dentist has done, logically, because it's difficult to say that that's where the IT trends go to and that's how you can basically cope with that. And uh, therefore, the MSPs are very important because they're also quite good um advise us on that. Well, it's like anybody, you know, you're surrounding yourself with good people. What sort of questions do you ask uh, when you're looking for the right um, person? So as you mentioned, you need someone who's quite um, efficient with getting back to you. So their responsiveness is important, but also how well do they know your business or your type of business and the programs that you use and the way that you function? Because you don't want someone to come in and just completely overhaul all the systems and then you have to relearn everything. They really have to understand what your existing systems are and work with that, yeah. don't they? And, and and here it's easier than compared to a dentist. If you go to a new dentist, you move to a different town, he would say, change everything that the old dentist has done, logically, because it's a different view of it. Mm. But here it's different. When you are, um, for example, you are a small business in, in, the, in the legal area. So then you would find out which of, which of the managed service provider around me, which is at least is not too far away, cover similar kind of companies that I can talk to even them and say, oh, does it make sense? Many of the MSPs are also in uh, referral-based organizations that I can really build trust first before engaging with them. And that then really shows 
that it can be a very good partnership. And I like your point about keeping it local, which is one of the things we really focus here on Small Biz Matters as well. We're going to take a quick break here um, on Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after these community service announcements. You are listening to Small Biz Matters and my name is Alexi Boyd. We'll be back after this. And welcome back to Triple H 100.1 FM. My name is Alexi Boyd and we are here talking all things cybersecurity and interactivity with our data in the cloud and all those fabulous words that for some people are completely meaningless but need to be quite importantly thought of as a small business. We're here with our special guest uh, Gunnar Habits from Keep It Safe. Just before the break we were talking a little bit about what is the cloud, where your data is, how you can keep it safe, some top tips on on uh, ways to uh, manage all of that stuff as well. So, um, Let's talk about, uh, I love this, the pizza. And everyone's going, we're talking about cybersecurity. Why are we suddenly talking about pizzas? Tell me about the pizza. Yeah, so then uh, I love this example for a simple reason. We all have heard about the term as a service. So everything can be as a service. I mean, desktop as a service, uh, software as a service. But if you really take it from, from a little bit backwards, if you would like to create your own pizza at home, you need to do a lot of stuff. You need to get all of the ingredients. You need to even Great put the everything on the, on, the, on the the plates on it and everything you do yourself. So that is what what you would call an IT point of view. That's the on-premise. Your own server, you install all of this and it's all running there and it's yours. You have it in your mm. hand. Mm. So then the next one would be uh, in a sense of uh, take and bake that, that you're outsourcing a little bit of the pieces. You don't need to take your pizza dough anymore and all of the toppings. You really get this already. You can buy this in the shop so that... We would call here infrastructure as a service. Mm-hmm. That the whole certain infrastructure layer yes. is delivered already from IaaS rather than providers. building your own computer. Yeah. Exactly. So the next one, next level would be then platform as a service. So there, there you get more about it out of the cloud, whole platform of, of things which has more services. So from a pizza point of view, it is a delivered pizza. You not not only get the, the topics and everything mm-hmm. at the door, but you have the total pizza which is coming. Uh, to your home, mm-hmm. so that's a platform as a service. And when you take it then further and say software as a service, what is that? So it's basically you are dining out and you go to a pizzeria and have it there and enjoy it in their premises and in their environment. So that is basically you only pay in the software as a service for what you deliver. Not necessarily that you have it in your hands anymore, but you get the service. And that is the big, big trend that you see also in all of the IT uh, areas when maybe 10 years ago, you wanted to get the Microsoft Office. You bought it. You bought, mm. let's say, you bought the license. Yeah. Well, you, you bought could the use box. It. You can, you can, you have the box. You can use it for 10, 20 years as long, let's say, it's supported and safe. But with Office 365, it's totally changed. So it's only the annual subscription. And whenever there's a new version, like the upcoming Office 2019, you get it. You yeah. don't need to pay for it. But you, you just pay do the just updates. for usage and the usage is then completely different it's and uh, per month so and it's not even much money would you say that as the um as the as to use your analogy as the pizza is more uh, refined and more readily delivered your service goes down or does it go up i mean it, the, the service providers are, are meant to be supporting the software is is it improved in the last few years? Do you think it's better than it used to be? With I perceive it improved because, uh, of course, you need to let go. You cannot control everything anymore. You cannot say to the to the pizzeria what kind of oven they should have because you might have a different choice yourself. Mm. It's not there. Mm. You cannot decide. You have to work within the, their parameters. How the data center is created. The mm. good thing is that many of the big providers like uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they store the data in Australia, which 
for most customers here is very important, especially when they have certain regulations that it requires the country staying in the country. Such not, as not if leaving. you're in the financial services sector. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even the health healthcare yes. in New Zealand doesn't allow to store data in Australia, although we are neighbors. So mm. It should be local. So and that is a, at least that's a good thing on it. So we do not have to take care of some data which is sitting somewhere outside. And that's another little exercise my listeners can go away and do today, which is to actually question whereabouts your data is being stored. Because if you're not comfortable with your your, da- your data being stored in a, in a perhaps in a country that, that you're unfamiliar with or that you're not confident comfortable with um you need to ask those questions and maybe move stuff around so that it is only in australia if you're in uh, an organization that is part of the financial services sector you've got a requirement um that that there's that it can only be um locally locally stored as well so something else to be aware of and maybe ask the questions yes and there's another requirement as well which is about how long you should store the data so a typical retention time of seven years mm-hmm. and in some industries is goes even beyond that yeah particularly for health imagine yes so um that that sort of brings us neatly around to um rpo and rto so another expression that is that is bandied about um can you explain that to the listeners yeah and the funny thing is most abbreviations in the it industry have three letters if you realize this so it's very often three so then here uh, when you take uh, the situation that there would be a disaster mm-hmm. let's say the server doesn't work anymore it's mm-hmm. stolen mm-hmm. there's a fire whatever you're talking about on a micro level like your own personal disaster even there, yeah. Even there, it doesn't matter how it is, but uh, you cannot continue to work anymore. Then you have basically two kind of numbers, uh, and uh, one is the RPO, which is the recovery point objective. So it's basically the maximum targeted period in which the data might be lost. So let's say if the last backup you have done and you know that that, that you can trust was uh, maybe three days ago, yep. then the RPO time, if you put it in hours or days, doesn't matter. But it's that time from the last time you had the last snapshot until today. Right. When you're writing on some kind of business case for the next financial year, you lose three days of data yep. in case the last backup was at that time or the last snapshot that you still have from the server. That's the RPO. And the other one is the RT or the recovery time objective to say, by when are you ready again? So how long does it take to get back into this? Wow, these are really into the data. these are and really abbreviations we yeah. need to be familiar with. And this you, is something we should be writing into our business plans, isn't it? Yeah, and you're basically with your disaster, you're sitting sitting exactly in the, in, in the middle. So then the business continuity plan really need to have that. So depending the business you are in, it can be different kind of requirements that you have. Of course, larger organization with large IT teams, they can make these two variables rather small. Mm-hmm. So when they run their backup really on a, with full snapshots on a daily basis or even even faster, mm-hmm. and they don't lose that much because always the question is, how much does it cost in terms of effort, time? Man hours. To, yeah, to get back what you lost. Not only to redo it, but then also the time that it takes to find and work out where the hell it's gone and get it back or rewrite it or whatever it is that that you do. And that's the question we should be asking ourselves when there's people out there who say, I don't have a backup. (laughs) First of all, you're nuts. But secondly, Hmm. um, really? Well, okay, how much time would it take you to redo or only back up once a month? Really? You're going to do 29 days of work again? And then, like you said, um, you know, the RTO... You're, that's time down where you can't actually be working on your new clients or existing clients because you're redoing the work that you've just done over the last month. And you really need to ask yourselves, you know, we all know that time is precious. Well, then don't waste time because you haven't got these systems in place for a, for a continuity. Yeah, taking back into the pizza. So it's a question of the risk appetite. Hmm. 
Indeed. And usually people are not risk hungry. I love food allergies. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let's, let's talk about worst case scenarios now. Um, cyber insurance. So I know personally as a bookkeeper, I have to have my own uh, professional indemnity insurance. And, and a lot of these insurances now have got a little bit of cybersecurity book that locked into them. So they, they protect you somewhat. But it's really important for those of you who go, oh, good, I've got cybersecurity insurance. You go back to your broker and you say, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean you're going to pay me for a month's worth of wages while I spend the time trying to recover the data? Or are you expecting me, do you have parameters in which I must back up as a part of my insurance policy that I'm going to be covered, but I have to prove that I'm doing due diligence and I'm backing up at these intervals? You don't know. So ask your broker those questions because cybersecurity is something, again, in a contingency plan we need to be aware of. And it is good. It's good news that the, the insurance... In, you know, industry is coming on board with cybersecurity options as an add-on, but investigate it. Find out with your insurance policy. Ask your professional association if you've got the best policy for you and what the expected cybersecurity issues might be for your industry. I think that's really important. So how does that... How does yeah. that sorry, go on. The interesting thing on cyber insurance, many people believe I'm covered, so the backup is not too much needed. And some others ask, hey, you are in cloud backup. That is like insurance. And I said, no, it's a complementing topic. You might not get a cyber insurance when you don't have a backup plan in place. Mm. And if you take it further, more broadly speaking, there's the two things. In case of a disaster, you lost data and actually you lost time because the time to be back on track, that time, time is money. So then the cyber insurance can cover you a little bit about that mm. when it comes to the revenue loss because backup providers can't do that. Yes. But cyber insurance cannot get back your data. Like every insurance is a question of the risk and money that's associated with it. So then it needs actually both. Hmm, that's true. You need to cover yourself both for the, the data. Your insurance policy needs to be a data insurance policy in a practical sense, as well as, uh, you know, a, an insurance policy which covers you for the time as well. And, and it's not only the question of backup, because at the end, if you take it from a more broader perspective, you would like to be back on track. So then it's a question for me about more the disaster recovery, because backup is good, to have to restore files to have the opposite of a backup is restoring to get back into data and one of our backup uh, software vendors made a uh, worldwide um, study about 2016 and they found out that six percent of all volume that is stored across the worldwide uh, has been taken back and restored usually files that have been deleted or older version of the file so that's a typical opposite of the backup yes you can get back data that's good but you normally talk about you have majority of your data, but you're interested in a smaller subset of the data. The biggest driver here on the whole story is rather the disaster recovery, which takes that everything is lost, all is gone, and how you cope with that. And that also with the cyber insurance comes into place. So then that for me falls into the total idea of the business continuity, which needs to have a proper business continuity planning. Uh, and there, there are organizations um, who really do this and, and help on that one. And um, if, if you follow some of the organizations um, who consult larger companies, um, like um, one of uh, our business partners, Rinske Herlings, she's doing this and her company name is Business as Usual. She's really guiding and posting about all of these topics, how she's doing this, not only for Australia, but also in APEC. So that's good and learn and draw some conclusion to make a business continuity planning just for my own small business mm. to find out how am I covered? Because one thing is for sure clear whenever a disaster comes it comes in the worst moment yeah yeah it's never it's never good timing is it and i, I like what you were saying there there's some definitely some good places what was that what was the name of her company again 
business as usual. Business as usual. A great, uh, a great resource there. You can follow her and uh, read some of her articles and actually condense it down for what you can use for your business as well. And just going back to what you were saying there about um, the importance of uh, the restoring factor, um, might, maybe an exercise today that people can go away and go, okay, let's, let's hypothetically say I've, I can't get back a file. What is the process, while I'm not in a panic mode, what is the process to find out how to get that file back? So that when it comes to, you know, being a complete panic, you know, at least in your mind, okay, I've researched this. I know what I have to do to get to get this file back if I can get it back, um, and at least you're you're not doing it, you know, when you're when you're in a highly stressed situation. That's another thing you can and research. I, and I think most of us went through this, that we lost a file that we wrote uh, we wrote on something. Uh, I'm publishing, uh, so then I remember some articles I wrote and simply lost some years ago. So then, when you go through this and you learn how can I prevent this, that mm. it's more sharpening the mind compared to simply seeing it from from a. a from a I've, I can't get back a file. What is the process, while I'm not in a panic mode, what is the process to find out how to get that file back? So that when it comes to, you know, being a complete panic, you know, at least in your mind, okay, I've researched this. I know what I have to do to get, to get this file back if I can get it back. Um, and at least you're, you're not doing it, you know, when you're, when you're in a highly stressed situation. That's another thing you can research. And I think most of us went through this, that we lost a file that we wrote, uh, we wrote on something. Uh, I'm publishing uh, So then I remember some articles I wrote and simply lost some years ago. So then when you go through this and you learn how can I prevent this, that mm. it's more sharpening the mind compared to simply seeing it from, from a... Uh, from a probability point of view, yeah. it will happen. Yeah, and on a day-to-day -day level, if you're creating a new Word document or a new Excel file, the first thing you do is write the title, the second thing you do is save it, and then you start doing the content. <laughs> a number of times I've had my daughters produce like pages and pages of work for an assignment. It still says document one at the top of the page. I'm like, oh, save, quickly, save. <laughs> That's another big thing that people do if they, um, I don't know, if the computer crashes or runs out of batteries or something like that. So let's take it through some really, I love this, worst case scenarios. Let's do some real examples of um, complete disasters. So ransomware attacks are a really good example of that. Um, I personally know three or four people who have been attacked by ransomware. And luckily, I've also known a very good IT consultant locally who's managed to get that ransomware out. There's no guarantees, though, because they're getting more and more sophisticated, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. And uh, there's one interesting thing. Ransomware attacks are coming, especially in English-speaking countries, a bit more often. Mm. Because they are coming not through to the infrastructure, but very often they come onto the PCs, notebooks, clients, whatever, because of the human the human element behind that. So then you read this email, which really looks like, ah, oh, that came from Apple with my Apple ID. But how can I really find out that it's strange? So coming from a non-English speaking country, it's more obvious because they're very often grammatically bad. Bad translated. <laughs> so that's not good that, that, that you see that it's not proper. Yeah. And uh, the most important thing when you have doubts, take with your mouse, hover over a link, not press on the link because it's more likely that the link shows something like uh, Apple.com or whatever, mm. but at the end it's not. Mm. So then you can see that it's a very, very long URL. The tricky thing is on a smartphone or tablet, you can't hover uh, over. So don't open anything nope. if you're not sure. Nope. Yeah. Open it, or look, look this kind of... Um, email rather on a PC yeah. with big cautious on it and in doubt don't do it anyway because whoever wants something from you will find the right means to transport it to you 
every bank, telco provider, who, insurance, whoever, they would not call you dear client, but rather with a real name. So it's more obvious. They might even put whatever kind of a number there. So um, that, that's the first thing to pay attention to. But then when, when it simply happens, I remember one of our MSPs uh, had an interesting lesson. There was a client that they had about 10 PCs and they have been hacked. So there was this traditional red element which simply then says... Skull and crossbones. That you have to pay in fractions of a Bitcoin to get this off. Yeah. So that particular one was $400. And uh, our MSP managed service provider thought, okay, just for education purposes for his technical team, hmm. what happens if you pay? Yeah. Just to find that out. Because at the end, the ransomware programmer, which are of course people who don't follow strict ethics in the way that we understand it, because otherwise they wouldn't do it, they encrypt all of that. You pay this, and in this particular case, he told me that it has been decrypted. So you pay for this, $400, it was decrypted. But the bad thing is, actually two things. Number one, when the programmer realized you pay, he does it next week again because you pay. Mm. Slowly increasing the money, lovely. That's not what you want. And the second one, that particular company has been affected actually twice. There was another group of five PC which have been affected. It looks a little bit different. It was not $400, was $2,000. And that's a different game. So then, and that really is also the advice uh, that you can see from, from, uh, from any organization to say, don't pay that. Were these the examples where people had clicked on it within... Yeah, yeah, yeah right. it came in. And the interesting thing is it's not only the PCs which are affected, but also other devices which are somehow connected to the internet. Take a fax machine. Yeah, printers. What, yeah, printers. Yeah. Whatever is there, switchboards, and has some kind of control and might not have latest operating system, might not have been patched by, by latest versions. Uh, very often you find it also in in smaller companies who do have IT people that they might not have enough time, effort, bandwidth to update all of operating systems. Or I realized one company recently who's operating Office 2007, which is not supported anymore by Microsoft. Mm. So then also Office can be vulnerable. So then pay attention that you have rather latest version of it. There are reasons why software providers are updating and trying to cope with all of security measures, Office. They're so trying but, to keep ahead of the game. Yeah, but th that is that is one thing. So when you... When you get inside, you have the ransomware attacks. So when you have the chance to go back to your existing backup and to take everything back, it takes you the time, as we discussed, uh, RPO back when, when you have it and RTO until you are back again on track. But that's the way that makes more sense. There's one big danger. Normally, the ransomware um, works like this, that they can encrypt your files, but not necessarily download them. Oh, I see. Okay. But they can do. Uh, they can block they you can from getting it. to them. Yeah. I can block me that I cannot get access into it, but it doesn't mean that they can have the files. Okay. But there's one trend. As we move more and more to the cloud and we have cloud based services, imagine only that your email stored at a cloud mail provider, whoever that might be, can be attacked by ransomware. That can, you can cause this as well. You open an email which has a login which looks like the login to your whatever, Office 365, Gmail, whatever. Mm. And soon it's not ransomware traditionally on your local devices, but somewhere in the cloud. So when it's there and the person, the ransomware programmer has access to it, he then can download. And now comes a big trick. We have the notifiable data breach 
in Australia since 22nd of February, which causes some fines. So if I'm a ransomware programmer, I would say, dear customer, call mm -hmm. it customer, mm -hmm. you don't want to pay me the $2,000. Well, I have your data. I can breach it. Then you have to pay $360,000 as an individual or $108 million fines as an organization. So they're aware of what the government um, is, is instigating with notifiable breaches. Yes, so then we need to pay even more attention yeah. on our passwords, on the way to access cloud-based services that this does not happen. Don't click on anything you're not sure of and, and try and minimise the risk by using software that helps to protect your data, I think is is one of the takeaways from that session here with Gunutz. Uh, sorry, Gunutz. Gunar. Good, I just combined your names. Um, look, you're here with uh, Small Biz Matters here on Triple H 100.1 FM. We're packing through so much information all in relation to cybersecurity and how to protect and restore your data here on Triple H. We're going to be coming back after these community service announcements. So today's program, speaking of technology, technological things, is uh, we're, we're focusing today on some quite intricate matters with relation to cyber security, data storage, data recovery. And just before the break, we were talking to our fabulous guest, Gunnar, about the way that we should be handling our data and thinking about the time that it takes to recover it and also restore it. So if you're only backing up once a month, and on the 29th day since your last backup, you lose um, everything. You've got to factor in the amount of time it's going to take you not only to potentially recover it, if it is recoverable, but restore it, which is actually to reproduce that data. And if you don't think that is an important factor in your business, just imagine having to down tools for two or three weeks and not service anything new while you're trying to reproduce that. I think that's that should be enough to scare people into... Uh, into, if not the scary stories about ransomware and all that sort of stuff. Are we here to scare people today, Gunnar? Is that the plan? Yeah, well, it's not about uh, selling a wellness service. <laughs> we want you to be aware of worst case scenarios because these are frequent. They're not, um, you know, it, it's not It's not as though it's. this is happening once in a blue moon anymore. Every single business, everybody who has email who uses, anybody who uses any technology is vulnerable. Um, and you were talking a little bit before the break about different emails and how to check if they are genuine. Uh, fuzzy logos, there's a good example of how you can tell if they're not genuine. If you're not expecting an email from this particular service provider, if you hover over the email address and it is um, very long or gobbledygook or not something that you recognise. Also these days, most uh, government agencies will not send you anything that expects you to click on a link. We're getting a lot of messages from MyGov, um, but they will never give you a link. They'll just give you a text thing that says you need to log into your account, however it is that you do that. So it, if you're suspicious at all, even in the slightest, then, then don't click on it. And another thing I, I found out um, a few years ago, I uh, was speaking to a cafe owner. He had, um, somebody had come in and said, can you please print this out for me? And they had it on a USB stick and they were a regular customer and I thought, yeah, sure, no worries. They plugged the USB key directly into the printer and printed out what was on there for them. It was a PDF. Nothing happened for months and then bang, they lost everything because there was a dormant virus that had been infiltrated into their system. And like you said earlier, not just computers and PCs, but actually through a printer, any device that is connected through your internet network your wi-fi as it will so you can't be overly cautious in this unless you think that your business is <laughs> is worth losing you can't be overly cautious 
I think that's the, the, t- the takeaway from today. So one of the things we were talking about just before the break was thinking about um, your insurance policy. Make sure you go away and ask about what it is that you uh, are covered for, not just the time that it takes to recover things, but the cost that it would be to recover the data. Um, what, what about this, uh, these emails we're getting quite a lot about from our international clients or suppliers, the notifiable, sorry, sorry, the GDPR regulation in Europe. What is that? Do we care? Why, why are we getting these emails? They seem to be spamming quite a lot. Yeah, that it, it particular happened the last couple of weeks that every kind of software vendor that we somehow subscribe to their services, let's take a MailChimp as an example to mm-hmm. send our newsletter, or everything that you, whenever register for a newsletter, they come back and say, in order to get your service again, please due to the GDPR, uh, please press again and opt in again. So the, uh, the um, GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe. It's a regulation, so it's already automated into law since 25th of May 2018. Mm-hmm. That goes much further than our notifiable data breach that we have in Australia. Oh, co- really? Yeah, yeah, and covers various items. And f- many people say, oh, that's Europe. Well, not actually. It's Number one, it's European Union and a bit more. So three countries more. It's not oh. the total uh, Europe as, as such. Is it Britain? Uh, is it England? Because they, yes, they it still. is. It is still okay yeah, until they completely extract themselves. Well. Yep. But the the point here is more. Um, and then the question would be even: Does it mean somebody who is a citizen from there is covered or not? But it's more the uh, territory approach to say: If I'm an Australian business owner, mm. I'm subscribing for a new uh, for a newsletter of an Australian um, provider. Mm-hmm telco provider for example when i do this subscribe for the newsletter i think i'm not covered by gdpr because i'm in australia but i do the same as an australian for an australian provider but sit by accident in frankfurt on the airport then i'm covered on gdpr oh which is why they've done such a universal throwing out of all this information and that's why we've got so many because they have to sort of cover themselves not only for where you live but where you might be located when you're reading and using their services and my point is gdpr lovely starts with a g which stands then for global treat it as global if you act like the worst part of a chain you can cover this and that makes sense because many organizations here in australia are working on the european market we are all global data from there or you market in in whatever way there you have suppliers who are having some of their services sitting in europe and partially the other way around so then it's quite obvious because we are so much connected here so then uh, and we see many of them updated the privacy policies and it makes sense to look what kind of privacy policy do we have yes i was going to say should we be looking into this as small business owners because we are in a global market Yes, yes. And it, it makes sense to look into what, what your lawyer is selling uh, is saying as well. So, for example, I found um, found a, a very good article on LinkedIn from a barrister who I know quite well, Talitha Fishburn from Wardle Chambers, and she really wrote about this, how that is affecting Australia when you do business with the European Union and the other countries around that, which are three more. Um, how does it affect us? What do we have to do? Because GDPR covers various items. It covers as well the topic of a data breach the only difference to the australian one in australia the law says you need to report the data breach within 30 days after it happens if you don't report it to the government then there are the fines that i mentioned uh, three sixty thousand dollar or one hundred eight million. Mm-hmm. 30 days the difficulty is very often it is our clients to tell us that we lost data Right. It's not necessary that, that companies know about that. It's no. rather the other way around. And yeah. it takes its time. Uh, it might be minutes for somebody to hack in 
but it might take months to find it out. Yeah. And the GDPR goes further and says it needs to be reported within 48 hours and the fines... Oh, 48 hours? Yes. And the fines are in two steps, depending what, what kind of... Um, uh, what kind of data breach it is, and the highest one has a fine of either 20 million euro or 4% of the global annual turnover, whatever is greater. So imagine the Australian subsidiary of a large organization, which has a head office in Europe, is capturing this, and we create a little tiny issue here, so then 4% of their global turnover worldwide can be captured. And we know that some companies are operating worldwide, that's a trend anyway so that that's rather scary to go on this one there's some other items in it and therefore it comes to the way how we act and therefore we got all of the newsletter because it's a question of when you do uh, when you market towards consumers so b2c business to consumers they need to have an active opt-in for a newsletter so yeah. if i would like to subscribe to small business matters newsletter i would like to do that mm. And you record this, that mm -hmm. you have this, in mm -hmm. case that I would come and say I never subscribed to this, because you store data for me, personal identifiable data. That's what you have for me, my name, my email address, when I register. And that is personal enough to be considered a data breach. Absolutely. On the B2B side, uh, marketing to business, it's a little bit different. At least it should be a subsequent opt-out that should be also recorded. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that's an uh, important element. And you... We all have seen that the, the big vendors of software who handle this or marketing automation software, that they really go after this. GDPR has been published two years ago and comes into practice now, but my feeling is that everybody tries to do it at, at the last moment. And for sure, most organizations are not ready for this. But what I like when, when, when there are the most critical players in the area of marketing automation, like Marketo uh, from the US, they even took a very bold approach here in Australia to look into how that works, what we can, how we can guide our customers from Australian point of view instead of just saying it's somewhere there in Europe. So given that we are working in a global market now and then we all have either a, a client or a supplier or some sort of connection to a European company, aside from examining our privacy policy on our, um, on our website and also looking at our legal side of things and making sure that we're covered, is there um, a place that we can go to that will explain the GDPR regulation for Australian businesses? Is, um, is, is the Australian government supporting businesses in any way to explain to them what they have to do? Is there anything that's happening? I mean, where can we get resources yeah, on this? Well, of course, there's a couple of organizations which are in the in the cybersecurity space in general because it's connected to it. If, if people follow ACS, you on LinkedIn, example. can they find out this sort of information? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So I'm, I'm also posting about these topics. Mm, um, mm. I will put in the, in the meeting notes also this particular article about GDPR in Australia that mm. I mentioned. And don't forget everyone, when you are listening to Small Biz Matters, the p podcasts which are all available online via the website, we also have some copious notes and information and reference points that you can go to as well as listening to the podcast at the same time, which which Gunnar has very uh, kindly supported the yes. program with. And and one, one interesting thing on, on the GDPR, the customer has the right to be forgotten. So imagine... I had you on my private newsletter. Yes. But you don't want this. Yes. Then you can raise that I delete the data. But that comes when I take it from a small business point of view. How would I know where I store all of the data? Yeah. Physically where it's stored? Yes. But also how can I get rid of that? Which kind of tools has it? If I'm serving a client and I sell them, then of course I have it. I have an invoice of the service that I provided and that is taxable, so it needs to be stored. Stored for five that years, good, yeah. That's fine, and that's all good. But when it comes to putting a marketing on somewhere, yep. there the customer has the right to be forgotten. And even we have all of the call centers who are selling services, they need to ask now in Europe 
is it okay that I can talk about a promotion with you? Oh, before they can talk about it? Yes. God, that's going to make it a big hurdle, isn't it? Would be lovely if some insurance would do this in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> before they, they breach the conversation. Yeah, but the, the whole area comes, of course, because uh, cyber insurance is a very big issue. We are much, much more connected. So in the meantime, we already 46% of the world is connected when it comes to technology. May I ask you something? You were talking a little bit about newsletters there and the ability to be forgotten. If we use a large organisation like MailChimp or or some third party provider that's very huge and and well known, um, are they more likely to be able to be compliant with these regulations than if we're trying to manage these things ourselves on our website and we might be in breach? Do we, is, are we sort of meaning to trust those companies a little bit more than our own abilities because we're on such a global scale now? So my view is we can really trust those companies, especially I just updated on my own website used by WordPress, created by WordPress, and there's a button to to click so that when somebody would subscribe to my newsletter, it's automatically properly written GDPR compliant sentence about what happens if I, if a client clicks on that. So then they really take these organizations, they take GDPR from a global point of view. And they take it very seriously, obviously. And they publish a lot about it. When you take HubSpot mm. as an example, who also serves a lot with great tips to provide this value for free and until you use more. Mm. So it's all covered and that's a good one. That's so good we shouldn't time. be just reading these emails and going, well, it doesn't apply to me because I'm not located in Europe right now. But as you said, uh, we, we, we are on a global scale and all of these sort of changes yeah. we need to treat globally. Look, we've, uh, we've jam-packed this show. It's been an hour-long program and there's been heaps of information. Um, I'd like to thank you once again for coming on the program, Gunnar. I imagine we can probably talk for another hour in another couple of months' time and cover even more information off because your knowledge is just so uh, exhaustive. Now, how can people um, follow you on LinkedIn and find out a little bit more about the company that you're with? Yeah, well... Um I'm on LinkedIn myself. Gunnar mm-hmm. um, Habit easy findable. The name is not that that common. <laughs> and uh, our company, Keep It Safe, uh, has also an ANZ uh, representation on LinkedIn as well. And we are posting there and on Facebook all of the tips that, that can be done. And tips are very much needed because, uh, especially for small businesses, when I go and make my round in the BNI groups and talk to many of individuals, there's very often is some kind of question what we can really do and regular backup and DR testing is, is the obvious thing that of course is part of my, my profession, but also having secure passwords, multi-factor authentication is important. The one gentleman recently said, my password is called incorrect because simply the word incorrect, whenever I type something wrong, it tells me your password is incorrect. So that's a hint, but that's the worst thing. It's like as bad as taking your mother's maiden name because it's always oh, obvious yes. to capture. Yeah. So then, then these are elements that need to be done. Always run the security updates, uh, look into the access control of apps. And even if you have a password that you think it fits for everything, no better not have passwords differently. There are tools for doing so. And mm-hmm. if you don't like the tools, create passwords yourself and change them. Change them frequently, every quarter or something like this. As long as the password is not called Q118, something like this. Yes, not but at least, simplistic. But at least be, be clever on that. Talk to many service providers who can help about that. And for me, one of the starting points about a whole area is about the education, awareness, plan properly, look what's your risk appetite. How can you really cover this kind of situation? Because in that situation where it happens, it happens at a bad time. Mm. And I met one gentleman whose business was about to go to the ASX in two years' time. But they've been attacked by a hacker who only wanted to show his genuity. And the business went out of, I mean, the company went out of business. And it took that leader a year from a psychological damage that he failed 
to get back on track. So there's a lot of elements behind failure. He did have backups, but too old. So it was not possible to recover from this one. So That's the statistics right. that say 60% of business go out of, or companies go out of business after disaster within six months. That is, and that's the Australian number. Yeah, that and look, you know, we don't like to scare people here on Small Biz Matters, but I think today is is a way that we, we need to do that because you need to work backwards from worst case scenario and um, and you need to instigate with the right people and the right research and information to make sure that you cover yourself for this sort of aspect of your business, which is so important these days. Thank you once again for coming on the program, Gunnar, uh, from Gunnar Habits from Keep It Safe. You've been listening to Small Biz Matters, the half-hour program where you work on your business rather than in it. My name is Alexi Boyd. I'll see you all again next Tuesday.